You're listening to Ask Dr. E, where Dr. Michael Easley answers your biblical and theological questions in 10 minutes or less, or sometimes more like this episode. Here's today's question. Hi, Dr. E. I'm really worried that I committed the unpardonable sin and would love any information if you could help me with this. It's really bothering me. Have you ever heard of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and resisting or grieving it? I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I kept doing drugs and told God I just wanted to give up because I was tired of living. I know he wanted me to read the Bible to set me free from a demon, but I wasn't able to stop my addiction. I felt a demon enter in even worse and felt like the Holy Spirit left me because I couldn't hear him or feel him like I had before. What can I do to get the Holy Spirit back, and will he come back? Did I mess up so bad that God won't forgive me anymore? I'm recovering from my addiction and really committing my life to Jesus now, but in light of my addiction, will he forgive me and let me back in his arms? I'm really depressed and sad because although the Bible says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, it just feels like he did. I know that God took the Holy Spirit from Saul and then a demon entered into him. Could this be what happened to me? Thank you so much. I'm really struggling with this and any information about it would help me so much. Okay, a lot going on here. I'm just going to pull out some of the hot topic word she used. So one, what even is this whole unpardonable sin thing? She's talking about, um, I believe, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, resisting, grieving it. What does that mean? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And what does that mean that that is the only unpardonable sin? Okay, let's let's take these kind of as bullets and you interrupt me anytime you want. Okay, okay? I love interrupting right, so, you. Yeah, I know you do. You and your mother. <laughs> So um, the Holy Spirit, let's briefly start. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, also known as the unpardonable sin, is recorded in the synoptics, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What does that mean, synoptics? Uh, Similar. John would be the outlier. Mm -hmm. So you have the four Gospels. So what's important about synoptics is when when it occurs in all of them, we pay attention. Wow, each of those writers felt this was important to record. Got it. The context is when Jesus has cast out a demon from a person, and the Pharisees then accuse him of doing this by the power of Beelzebub. Now, the context is really clear. We've got these religious authorities, scribes and Pharisees, who are opposed to Jesus, and they're saying, what you did, you did by the power of Satan. Jesus explains that a kingdom or a house, not all the synoptics use house, but a kingdom or a house if it's divided against itself, it will fall. In other words, if Satan's group is divided against himself or God's group is divided, it's going to fall. He confronts them with the accusation that their sons, which is an interesting word, meaning your students or your disciples, are therefore guilty of the same thing. Hmm. So here's a fascinating detail. In Luke eleven twenty. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is a very clear reference to Exodus chapter 8, 19. And most of your Bibles have a little marginal letter or note there for a cross-reference, and they'll take you back to that. Exodus eight nineteen is when Pharaoh's magicians cannot do the same thing Moses is doing. And they say, this is the finger of God. <laughs> huh. <laughs> we, can't, we can't replicate that, that magic trick. Interesting. So let me review. To blaspheme the Spirit is to attribute Jesus' work to Satan. So is that the same as grieving the Holy Spirit, though, or are those two different passages? Um, different passages and different different concepts. Meanings. okay. Yeah, different concepts. Um, let, let me say one more thing about blaspheming before yeah. we move to grieving. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so if I'm rejecting Christ's work, think about this. If I'm rejecting the Holy Spirit by blaspheming him, I'm therefore rejecting Christ's work. 
I'm rejecting the gospel. And so if a person is concerned or interested in the spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit or Christ, he or she has probably not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Simply, the unpardonable or sin or blaspheming of the Spirit is the rejection of Christ's work in salvation. So a believer can't commit that sin. Oh, interesting. If I'm a believer... I've accepted, I've believed, I've put my faith in Christ. Uh It's impossible for me to blaspheme the Holy Spirit because I've already accepted, not rejected what Christ has done. The Holy Spirit's work in your life. So that's why, you know, these words, we take them out of context. Wow, the unpardonable sin, that means we can't pardon from it. So um, anyway, so if a person feels like he or she has done that, I would say the fact that you feel that way is strong evidence you haven't committed the sin. Right. You wouldn't care. If you'd blaspheme the Spirit, you wouldn't care about Christ or the Holy Spirit. You uh-huh. have rejected uh-huh. what God's done. We might say you're an atheist or an agnostic, uh-huh. but you wouldn't be concerned. But technically, couldn't someone who have done that then later come to faith and then totally. they receive salvation? A- so, absolutely. So all of our sin is unpardonable until we receive Christ as our Savior and he exactly. does for us what we can't do exactly. for ourselves. All right, so your question on grieving. This is from Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I, I remember a little from my seminary training, and one is the word, the word sealed in Greek is sfragizo, sfragizo. I always like saying that word. I know you fragizo. do. <laughs> it's an important word, and I had to do a lot of homework on it. So there. I bet you did. You deserve <laughs> to say it a lot. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's always begin with the context, all right? Ephesians 4, 25 to 31. This is where, you know, you've heard me talk about uh, caulk covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> yeah. when, when painters, you know, they, context covers a multitude of interpretational sins. All right, so this is Ephesians chapter 4, um, which this is so helpful. You, you know, everyone knows this already, but just a reminder, when you get a verse that doesn't make sense, read the verses around it. And uh-huh. a lot of times that context will solve your, uh, will answer your questions. So let me pick up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, to, with his neighbor. For we are all members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to all who hear. Now here's our verse. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So look at all the, the just the words. Don't lie. Don't speak in anger. Don't sin. Don't don't steal. Don't say unwholesome words. Uh, speak edification instead. Don't be bitter. Uh, have wrath, anger, clamor, slander. What's the context? The context is about how we say, well, what we say and how we live this life. Uh-huh. So simply, 
when you and I do these things that Paul is teaching us in Ephesians is to lay aside, we are not being controlled by the Spirit of God. Yeah. Ergo, we grieve the Spirit. We, uh-huh. we, and I don't want to over-anthropomorphize this. Yeah, the Holy Spirit isn't like... It's like crying it's like, inside, right? You, or, yeah. or you know, if if when you were a little girl and you did something and you and you just broke your mother's heart, right? Or you broke your father's heart, that is illustrative. But I don't want to go too far with that. Uh huh. And so when you and I sin, we are in a sense grieving the Holy Spirit. In some, anytime I disobey, yeah, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Okay. So we've got the unpardonable sin. We've got blaspheming the Spirit. We've got grieving the spirit. And then what about, I feel like there's a quench, don't quench the spirit. Is that Paul who tells us don't quench the spirit also, at some point? Also Pauline theology in 1 Thessalonians five nineteen. do not quench the spirit. Now, when you hear quenching, what do you think of immediately? I have no idea. If you're going to quench something? <laughs> don't know. Nothing, really? Uh, well, it's, most not, it's not in my daily vernacular, fire. to be fire. honest. Okay. You're going to quench fire. Okay. And I don't build a lot of fires. some of the Pentecostal history uh, had to do with, and we'll get into this further in her question. But um, the idea of quenching typically was to quench a fire. The word can also mean to suppress something. Okay. So in First Thess five nineteen, it covers our relationship with others as well as a general living faithfully. Um, we're to live at peace with one another, to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. And again, the context covers some of the question of quenching. So here, grieving is when I disobey, when I know what to do is right and I do the wrong thing. Sure. Quenching is more a suppressing of what I know I'm supposed to do. I'm to live faithfully. I'm to be at peace with one another. I'm not be unruly. So they're finely tuned, mm-hmm. but they are a little bit different. Interesting. So it's, you know, the spirit indwells us. We are then given the fruit of the spirit that that work in us and grow in us and whatever. But so when I'm not living, when I'm either being disobedient or just not living out the things that I know God has called all believers to be doing, I can be quenching the spirit or grieving the spirit because mm-hmm. I'm not allowing Him to right. use me and grow me and and produce fruit that he would produce. And and Paul will go on in Ephesians to talk about the, the deeds of the, uh, the fruit of the spirit is compared to the deeds of the flesh are evident. Right. And those comparison right. contrasts is really helpful. So when I'm controlled by the spirit of Christ, which is not a filling in the way we think of, you know, pouring into a glass, filling it up, but it's being controlled by when I'm controlled by the spirit of God, I'm less likely to grieve or quench uh, the Holy Spirit's work in me. Okay. But this moves to a bigger topic. Right. So, I mean, to go back to her original question, it seems like the bulk of it is really she talks about how she was baptized in the Spirit, which I know you're going to want to talk about, and then really behaviors, whether it's addiction or sin or demonic oppression, all these things, after the Holy Spirit indwells you, can the Holy Spirit leave? And specifically, she references Saul when... He, the Holy Spirit was upon him, and he, then he had demon depression, whatever. Okay, so I think that's where we'll, we'll head. But let's start with baptism of the Holy Spirit, because I have, of course, I was raised under you. Sorry. But I've also attended, no, that's a good thing. But I've also attended churches where baptism of the Holy Spirit is is a different experience than just your original salvation sealed with the Spirit based on some stories and acts. So, so talk to me about this. A big topic. Let's see if we can do justice in a short time. Um, 
to our Pentecostal friends, there's a variety of viewpoints. Yeah. Even within, you know, classic Pentecostal, neo-Pentecostal, and today what we might call charismatic lean churches. Let's let's start at the Bible. Uh, the phrase baptize in the Holy Spirit is only found seven times in the New Testament. Is that all Acts pretty much? No. A little bit of Pauline? No. Oh. It's across Gospels. Um, huh. And it's always a verbal construction. What does that mean? Which is interesting. It's an action. It's a movement. It's not. It's not a, a a participle of this is you know a noun. In other words, the baptizing is an activity okay. of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And uh, for you bookworms, I'll give them to you here. It's Mark one eight, Matthew three eleven, Luke three sixteen, John one thirty three, Acts one five, Acts eleven fifteen and sixteen. And First Corinthians twelve and thirteen, and Hannah will put that in the show notes. That's right. All right. So, number one, each person is baptized at the moment of salvation, baptized by the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Such an important passage Paul is huh. teaching them. The moment you trusted Christ. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, whatever, you were baptized into the body. Ephesians 4 5 uses the expression one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Interesting. Why didn't Paul say one Lord, one faith, three baptisms? Why three? Water, spirit, and what? Fire. Oh. Some some Pentecostal groups talk about being baptized in fire. Oh, wow. By fire, metaphorically. Okay. So in some, uh, I believe that. The moment you trust Christ and Christ alone, that you were born again and permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You were baptized by the Holy Spirit. And, and let me just sidebar here. The word baptism, because we are, are somewhat, you know, associate that with water. Yeah. Baptism, the best term I've come across, really means identified. Hmm. To be baptized is to be identified. When Jesus Christ was baptized, remember he comes out and he has the conversation with John the Baptist, uh, Matthew chapter three, and uh, John doesn't want to baptize him. Yeah, and he says, "Permitted at this time." Anyway, when Christ comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, or as a dove, not as a dove in the sense a bird landed on his head. Right. Um, I have this Steven Spielberg esque viewpoint of, of sort of this, you know, aura that came down from heaven that maybe looked like a form of Jesus and, and it sort of descend like a dove. Uh-huh. So it comes Flew down, down yeah, as yeah. a, yeah. And some churches have used the, you know, a dove as a metaphor for the Holy sure, Spirit. Sure. Uh, that's where they get it. Um, and then the voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Three things are happening there. We have the identification of Jesus Christ being God's son, the identification of the Holy Spirit descending upon him and, um, the father's voice that is heard. Uh huh. What's this all about? It's a, this is my son. He's identifying. He's him. the one. Yeah. And we have a Trinitarian gospel, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh-huh. It's all these churches that are jettisoning, you know, the Trinity. We don't need the Trinity anymore. So anyway, that, that's all for free. So the moment Christ was baptized, he's identified as God's son by the voice and the Holy Spirit descending upon him. So let's back up. If I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit, I'm identified as a follower of Jesus. When a person is water baptized, he or she is saying, I'm being identified uh-huh. publicly sure. for people to see. You know, this, this stuff makes so much sense, but we get all lost in the weeds. 
Well, yeah. and it's taught and explained differently yeah. and confusingly, I think, from different pulpits all over the country. So, And you mentioned uh, our caller asked about Saul and the Holy Spirit. This is a great question. When Saul sinned, God sent an evil spirit to harass him. And that's in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. That's pretty intense. Terrorizing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like Lord of the Rings kind of stuff, right? <laughs> Keep in mind, this is prior to the New Covenant, and the New Testament is going to underscore the indwelling is permanent. Remember, David also lamented, and this is this is insightful. In Psalm 51, yeah. this, this is the psalm written after he's been convicted by Nathan for uh, for murder, for adultery, uh, his treachery, uh, and Psalm 51 is this great penitential psalm. Uh, and you know, it, if I could offer sacrifice, I would. Most people miss that, but hmm. there's no provision in the law for what David did. Mm-hmm. That's why he says, "If I could offer sacrifice, I would." There's yeah. nothing I can do. Right. In verse 11 of Psalm 51, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You wonder if he remembers when God took it from Saul. I bet. I mean, he 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 was had a front row seat to that whole spear being thrown at him, running away yeah. from him, hiding for his yeah. life. Yeah. So he understood what happens uh-huh. if God took his spirit from him. Wow. So let's get the book in. Saul, he from the beginning of his kingdom, he messes up royally, uh-huh. and the kingdom is torn from him. In that vivid picture when he tears Samuel's. Uh, uh-huh. outer garment and he says you know god has torn the kingdom from you today and his so his life is plagued as the first king of israel and he, he messes up royally so this evil spirit you know how we attribute this to god is a conundrum it's one of the things you know i, I don't ask dr e has got limitations you don't know everything and well you know i may think i do but yeah i know you think i think i do <laughs> uh you think i think i do but all that to say um I think it's a, as the king of Israel, it was evidential that he had disobeyed. He's supposed to lead God's people. Yeah. And he shook his fist at God. Yeah. And did it his own way and made up lame excuses, which we all do and we sin. Right. But as a king, he didn't have the freedom to do whatever he well pleased. And so as consequence, God's going to show his people, I'll do this to my own king. Uh-huh. I'll bring consequences. He brought it on himself, but I'll bring consequences to his sin to show you I'm holy and you cannot trample or, or take lightly my command. You're supposed to wait seven days. Who was the king that he, I don't think he had God's Holy Spirit, but um, he wanted to be like God or said he was God. And so God like made him crazy and he like turned into an animal and ran around. Oh, in that's, the forest a, that's for that, oh, gosh, now you're, <laughs> seven years you're, or something. Yeah, Lackish, what's his name? I don't know. Yeah. See, I thought you knew uh, everything. Akish, Ak- Akish. Yeah, because he's the one who's eating grass. Yeah. yeah. Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Oh, was King Nebuchadnezzar? Wasn't it? I, I think know. so. I don't remember. We'll figure it out. I'll put it in the show notes. I'm not good on trivia. <laughs> the m- anyway, let's go back to our question. This is a great question. So, the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers permanently in the Old Testament. We have this thing called the New Covenant. Most of you are aware of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. That's a real easy reference to remember, by the way, Hannah. 31, 31. Oh, true. Jeremiah. So that's where you go to understand the new covenant. covenant. Okay. That new covenant is fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. My spirit is going to be important. No longer will you need the help of other people. The law is going to be in your heart. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured on you. Now, taking all that together, um, I don't think uh, because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit permanently 
that he's going to leave. Uh-huh. I don't think God's going to send an evil spirit to terrorize you and me when we sin. Okay. Why? Which leads to our next question. I mean, I don't want him to send a demon, but why do you why do you think that God won't based on that Saul passage? Let's keep going then. Okay. So, um, again, a lot of viewpoints on demons and demon possession, but it's the segue. I do think a believer can be harassed. Okay. And there's a common nomenclature about being demonized yeah. versus demon possessed. Okay. Uh, simply, the short answer is I have a hard time believing God would allow a believer who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, even though they're sinning and way off the reservation, let's say, I don't think the Holy Spirit is going to allow a demon Anything to possess else? a person yeah. that he indwells. Yeah. Now, can he be harassed? And if you like the word demonized, sure. We or have examples of that. Oppressed instead right. of... So yeah. let's talk about how this begins. Um, number one, Satan can tempt, but he cannot force. Okay. Keep that in mind. Uh, we, The occult, false religions, uh, frankly, the influence of drugs affects our resistance to temptation. Sure. And, I mean, it goes back to kids fooling around with Ouija boards or, yeah. you know, really weird satanic horror movies and whatnot. You may be a film critic and not have a problem with that. Uh, it can affect us. And uh, any of this in combination, you know, fooling around with the occult and drugs, and it, it opens us up is the expression I want to say. Okay. So when, once we open ourselves up to sin, we're easy, it's more easy for us to give in to that temptation. Uh-huh. And even Paul will you know, incidentally write about giving hearty approval to those who do the same thing right. in Romans 1 right. and 2. So when someone else goes down this road, yeah, that's right. You do what you want. And in a sense, the temptation and the the rooting, uh, the cheering on from the demon certainly uh, can't affect us. A major point here is don't blame a demon when our sin nature is a willing participant. Sure. Don't blame a demon when your, when my sin nature is a willing participant. Let's don't give Satan that much credit. He doesn't need it. <laughs> Let's own our sin. And that's where, you know, it's like pay attention to what you're paying attention to. If you're worried about demons and demonizing and is this the occult, then you're going to get sucked into it or mm. more likely than saying, look, it's there. Next question, stay close to Christ. Right. Own my sin. Right. Uh, right. The right people, the right places, the right decisions. Okay, let me sum it up. Number one, Christ loves you. He knows your sins. He knows my sins. He knows everybody's sins, and he still loves us. Number two, Christ is the only solution to our sin condition. There's no other solution. Third, we will always be tempted. We will all sin all of our lives. And if somebody tells you they're not, they're a liar and get away from them. That does not grant us permission to continue in sin that grace might increase. That's what Paul warned clearly in Romans 6. May I continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. May it never be. That's it's, it's ludicrous to think that way. Fourth, addictions, and I put that word in quote. Uh, they're hard things to define, and they're hard to beat. There, there's a whole trend today, and actually it's the last 20 years, where everything's an addiction. And I get you know, what the classifications, like DSM classifications and Christians are calling everything's addictions. I get why they do that. Um, can we wheel it back a little bit and say, you got a self-control issue? Yeah. You got a choice to make every day? Now, you know, you and I have friends that are addicted to drugs and very, very close dear friends that are addicted to drugs and they're in and out of treatment. 
Um, I learned something years ago from a Christian psychologist, and that's not uh, an oxymoron. <laughs> there are Christian psychologists. And he gave me the expression halt. Mm-hmm. Hungry, angry, lonely, lonely tired. tired. Yeah. And he said one of the you know thumbnail things he taught people was halt. If you are an addict, you don't leave the house hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. You address those needs. Yeah. Before you go out into the world, let's say, right. out into your day. Hungry, eat something. You're angry, calm down, take a break, yeah. chillax, lonely. I got to call my sponsor, my friend, my yeah. Christian buddy, my discipleship partner. Uh, tired, get rest, take care of yourself. Now, does that mean you're not going to use or fall in? No, but your likelihood of getting into trouble is lessened. Sure. I told this to a person I was, I was talking to years ago that they were going through some trouble. And they looked at me and said, I could never leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> I was taught halt in the context of marriage, really. I mean, when if Tyler and I have something that we really need to bring up and hash through, like if I'm hungry or angry <laughs> or lonely or tired, it's not time to have that conversation. Address the issue. Feed yourself. Connect if you're lonely, you know, whatever. Anyway, so I you, think you, halt works, I think, in a multitude yeah, of contexts. Well, and under the spirit's control, even better. You know, yeah. you, your, your mother, <laughs> boy, if she's hungry, we all know, uh, you know, if yeah. Cindy's hungry, you got to address that need or it's not going to go well. That's right. It's not going to go well. Same here. I get it. You got it genetically. All right. So anyway, <laughs> we, we digress. But addictions, and again, I'm not saying people don't have addictions. I'm saying, do we have to call everything an addiction? Hmm. All right. Five, I would encourage you, focus on God's word. God's spirit and God's people. Yeah. This has been, you know, a lesson for me over the years. It's it's reductionistic, but it's easy to remember and it's easy to appeal to. God's word is our truth. God's word is our source of authority. God's spirit is the person who indwells us, who controls who helps us control our appetites spiritually and God's people. I need God's people around me as if you've listened to me more than three times I talk about do I need a, a dope slap or do I need encouragement? And I have a handful of very good friends, Hannah, you know all these guys, that if if I have a problem or a challenge and I'm talking to these guys and they go, you know, Uncle Dave as we call him, Dave Gibson. Yeah. You know, Michael, do I need to give you a spiritual dope slap? Right. Or do I need to encourage you right now? Yeah. And you we need God's word, God's spirit and God's people around us to keep us on track. And here's the thing that we miss. We focus on not sinning or not getting into these traps, or yeah. we focus on what Satan is doing, or my addictions. If we turn that emotional energy and time spent on God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people, we're going to find true joy. Hmm. We're going to find obedience isn't a burden. I mean, I'd much rather hang out with my rock solid brothers in Christ who are going to, you know, we're going to have fun together. We're gonna do, it's not like, a, you know, a Bible study all the time. Right. But I'm not in the wrong substances, in the wrong relationships. I'm not in the wrong world joy that really isn't joy. Yeah. No. And lastly, remember, God's not mad at you. He cares about you. He loves you completely. And he knows you struggle. Yeah. He's that kind of father. Yeah. If you've got a question for Ask Dr. E, call us or text us at 615-281-9694, or you can email us at question at michaelincontext.com. We would love to hear from you. Ask Dr. E is a production of Michael Easley in Context. The music for this show is composed by Jason Germain, and you can find more biblical resources at michaelincontext.com.